Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. If you have a Bible, open up with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. We are starting a new series this morning in the book of 1 Timothy that I'm calling House Rules. House Rules. The Apostle Paul here in, in the book of 1 Timothy, it's a letter really, he, that he's writing to a young pastor named, guess what? Timothy. Makes sense. Now, interesting enough, Timothy is like, they see, you know, he's young and everybody says he's super young. Do you know he's like 35 or 40 when they write this? So I'm really happy about that because that's considered young in the Bible. So right on. But uh, Timothy is, is, you know, been with Paul. He's not just a pastor, but he has an actual you know, he has a very special relationship with Paul. We'll see in a moment that he was Paul's son in the faith. So Paul had taken Timothy when he was a young believer, and he had began to raise him up to be a man of God. He, he took the foundation that he had from his grandma and mother, and then he, he built upon that in terms of breeding him up to be in ministry, to be a pastor. And so uh, they have a great relationship, and, the Lord, and Paul is writing uh, for this uh, reason. He wants Timothy to be encouraged and equipped to lead the church that he is leading currently, which is the church of Ephesus. So what's gone on is, is um, somehow Paul had, you know, at some moment in his life, probably after his Roman imprisonment, Many, many scholars believe that Paul was released for a couple years before he actually was beheaded in Rome, which people believe that that's actually what happened. We don't really have the account of what happened. These are historians of different things where we get this information. But here's the deal. Paul, probably after being released from Rome, was making his rounds to the churches. And Timothy was with him, and uh, he came to the church of Ephesus, and he saw that it was a train wreck. And he said, whoa. What in the world happened to this place? And he said, man, Timothy, I need you to stay here. Now, check that out. This is not just Paul sending somebody there. This is him sending his son in the faith there. Paul is saying, I so care about this church in Ephesus that I'm going to send my son in the faith to, to be planted there to minister to you guys. I, I want, he wants them to understand that. This church was a mess. As we read the account, we can kind of get an idea of what's happening in this church. He's saying, dude, there's tons of disorder, tons of confusion about who's supposed to be in leadership, who we're supposed to lay hands on, you know, and, and all these different issues. Not only that, but then on top of that, the, the, the chaos and the disorder that's happening, they have tons of false doctrines that are going through Ephesus. It, it, it makes sense for that to happen, and that's why Paul... He, 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 before he got arrested in Jerusalem and then got arrested and went to um, Rome, uh, he called the elders of Ephesus to himself in the, in the, at the island of Miletus because he said, hey, I don't want to go to Ephesus. I don't have time to do that. I'm making my way to Jerusalem. I am going to uh, literally give up my freedom and probably my life. Like that, that was his mindset when he, when he got there to Miletus. And he said, I need to call these elders from Ephesus to Miletus so I can have a serious conversation with them. And listen to what he said to them in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 32. He said, pay 
careful attention to yourselves and to all the, the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Verse 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among yourselves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease to day, um, cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. Paul warned them, listen, there is a potential train wreck coming if you're not careful. If you don't adhere to the word of God, if you don't stick to what God says and don't go outside of the bounds of Scripture, this will be a train wreck. He said they're coming. I, I mean, it's not a, not a question of if, they are. So beware. He is exhorting to the leadership of this church to not only be concerned about people outside the church, but also within. He said there's going to be people that will be raised up from among you that are going to start to say weird stuff. Beware. Now, he, he knew it was coming. He'd been dealing with this. He had set up multiple churches. And in fact, you know, on, on all of his missionary journeys, there wasn't ever a church that he came to and was like, man, you guys are doing awesome. <laughs> you guys really got it down. Praise God. You stick with the scripture and all that kind of stuff. The only place that we see Paul really see a, a, a place that probably blew his mind was in Berea, where he goes, whoa, you guys take the word literally. Like you, 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 you look in the scriptures to see what I'm saying is true. That is what it's about. Now this is something that not only Timothy has to deal with in, in Ephesus, but we have to deal with that here in our culture as well. From the time that the church was planted, the enemy has been on the attack. And, and where does the enemy attack? Where does the enemy attack God's people? At his word. At his word. You remember the Garden of Eden? Did God really say? That was an attack on God's word. Why do you think that it's such a big deal that they take out the word of God out of, out of everything that we, the society that we live in? Because it's an attack from the enemy. The enemy knows the power that is found in the word of God. And he's saying, hey, I, I don't want that word going out. I want to strip all of the monuments that speak about the word of God. I want to take it out of any possible place that I can. But we can teach about Muslims in public school, but we can't teach about Jesus, right? That makes no sense. But at the end of the day, we understand we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness. So that's the, that's the reality. And, and Paul understands that battle, that there's going to be a constant stripping away of God's word. And so he, he tells them, you guys need to, as the leadership of the church, you need to be strong. You need to pay attention. You need to be the sheepdog of Je for Jesus in these fellowships and make sure that they stay to true doctrine and that there's not weird stuff going on in the church. And we have the instructions from the Word of God. So let's just stay within there. Now, um, you know, Paul, Paul tells us the very purpose for his writing. He, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, this is what he says to Timothy. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things, listen, to you so that, 
if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and the buttress of truth. The word there, behave, you can circle that in your Bible and you can write it out to the side. It literally means in the Greek to conduct oneself with an apparent focus upon daily life. So he's not just saying, hey, when you guys gather together, let's behave like this. That's not what he's saying. He's saying Christians need to behave like this all the time. All the time. We're not a different person when we come in the gathering of God's people than we are when we go home. That's not what Jesus called us to. He called us to constant change, being refined in him. But we are called to a standard. There's a standard, folks. And, you know, we're, we don't live by the law, but the law shows us the standard, doesn't it? The law, the law shows us what God requires of anyone who thinks that they can make it to heaven on their own. We can't do that. That's why Jesus came. But the law, as Jesus said, was not bad, and we'll talk about that in a minute. It, it's something that, you know, Jesus fulfilled for us because it's impossible for us to do it. And then when he set us free from the burden of the law so that we could live our lives for him fully, like just freely, just he put love in our hearts and he said, I want the law that, that you live by to be the law of love, to be sacrificial in all that you're doing and all these kinds of things. Paul says, I want you to teach these people how to behave in the household of God, in the family of God. Hence the, the, the reason we're calling the series House Rules. House Rules. Now, 1 Timothy is, is one of three letters written by Paul that is called a pastoral epistle. A pastoral epistle. These, 2 Timothy, 1 and 2 Timothy and the book of Titus were written to pastors. Timothy being a pastor, Titus being a pastor, both of them actually being Paul's son in the faith, interesting enough. And what he does is he writes to them about, as a pastor, this is the things that you need to be concerned about. And you're sitting here thinking, well, why are we talking about this? Because it's not just a pastoral epistle in terms of instruction to pastors, but it's also instruction to believers. So that when you walk into the household of God and you go, uh, this isn't what it's supposed to look like. Because we have the pastoral epistles. We have the things that are written in Scripture that tell us what the church gathering should look like. How, you know, how when we come together that there should be order. That this shouldn't be chaotic. That there should be some level of, you know, structure. And that there should be, you know, some basic elements. And ultimately, listen, the most important, that God's Word is the center. That God's Word, that we, that we put God's Word out there, and we don't, we don't just, you know, talk about uh, things, good principles to live by, and, and all these kinds of things, but we talk about the Word of God, verse by verse. You can't miss stuff when you do that, so that's why we do it that way, and, and I believe that that's what God's desire is for us. As Paul was writing this letter, he's writing Scripture, probably doesn't, he doesn't know that, but he's writing inspired by the Holy Spirit, He's saying, these are pastoral epistles. These are to my sons in the faith. But yet, little does he know that these letters will be used thousands of years later by the Holy Spirit to tell us what we are to look for in a church, what we are to look for when it comes to leadership. Who do we lay hands on in the body? You know, we're going to get into, you know, should women be pastors in the church? These are, this is some of the texts that we will get into. Man, that's really, really edgy. No, it's the Scripture. 
I mean, we need to teach the scriptures, right? And, and so we're, we're not going to err away from things that might offend people. We're going to tell you, hey, this is what we believe it says. And at the end of the day, you know, we're not going to, you can disagree. That's fine. We're going to love on each other because that's what Christians do. And we're not going to divide over secondary issues. But here's the deal. The word of God tells us what it's supposed to look like. And we can hold fast to these things. Isn't it interesting that the very first thing that Paul addresses in 1 Timothy is maintaining sound doctrine. Maintaining sound doctrine. He, he didn't say, man, make sure you really work on your opening statement and make some funny jokes so that people will be engaged. He doesn't talk about how to engage people. He says, teach the word of God. Be steadfast in maintaining sound doctrine. So stand with me. We're going to read 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father, and Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to all the places in our hearts, Lord, this morning, that there wouldn't be a place that we would hide from you this morning, that you would speak into areas of our life that we need to be challenged and changed in. For some of us here this morning, Lord, there are places of hurt so deep in our hearts and we've been carrying that hurt around. Will you heal this morning? By your word, Lord, will you come and speak intimately into the lives of your kids this morning? And for those who don't know you this morning, God, will you open an opportunity for them to come to know you this morning? We thank you, God, for your word, for your son, for your Holy Spirit. We ask you to help us to now rightly divide the word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So Paul begins this, this letter declaring the authorship. He says, Paul. Now, this might blow your mind, but lots of scholars question whether Paul wrote this book, this letter. Did Paul really write it? Yeah, he did. He said he did. So he says, Paul. And, and, and the way that works is in this culture, the way that they would write a letter, because remember, they were on scrolls. It's not like you just flip to the back page and go, who's writing this? You have to unravel it. This is six chapters. So what they did was they immediately address the hearer by saying who it is that's writing. So Paul says, I'm making a declaration right now that I'm writing this. I am writing this. Now, you know, it's interesting how... I've heard that if you're super smart, you struggle with, with being skeptical about, about things that are obvious. I've just heard that, but, um, it, and, and that is the, actually the case here. Paul, there's, there's no, really no mistake about who is the author of this letter. It is the Apostle Paul. Listen to what he says. I want to tell you now the authority that I'm, I got the author, now here's the authority that I'm writing, and I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Paul isn't writing on his own behalf. He's not writing. The things that he is going to say is not just a 
a, a discipler talking to a disciplee. He, what he is saying is the things that I'm about to say are coming from Jesus Christ himself. So what he is saying is I'm not coming in my own authority. Like I don't just think it's a good idea to write Timothy a letter. I'm just like, hey, I better just write Timothy a letter. Let him know here's some things you might want to look out for. That's not why he's writing the letter. He's saying let me tell you what Jesus says about the very situation that you're in, Timothy. Here's what Jesus wants you to know. I'm an apostle. Literally that 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 title or you know that 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 well that title literally means a sent one or an ambassador. He's a representation of Jesus. Did you know you're an ambassador of Christ? The Bible you you're not an apostle in the sense of this apostle, but you are an apostle. You're a sent one as well. Not in the same context. The apostolic ministry here with Paul probably being maybe the 12th sealing that apostolic ministry there. And, but, but regardless, what we know is that he's saying, I am sent by Jesus to write this uh, letter to you. And, and Paul, Paul tells Timothy here, uh, you know, the, the very things that he needs to watch out for. So letters coming in the authority of Jesus. And again, not just, that tells us the context, not just for the church in Ephesus, but also for the church at large. Like, this is supposed to go beyond this. That right away, we know this, that this is supposed to go beyond Ephesus. But isn't it interesting that God can write something very specific to a church, but it be applicable to all churches? Isn't that interesting? It's so cool how God's word works. It's alive and active and sharper than an any two-edged sword. That's why when you open up God's word and you're reading that, you know, and you're, you start to read his word, and you're just like, dude, this is what I'm going through right now. This is crazy. His word is alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. How many interpretations are there of Scripture? One. How many interpretations are there of Scripture? One. How many applications are there of Scripture? Infinity. What do I mean? There is one thing that God is trying to communicate through his word, but that one thing can be applied to a gazillion things in your life. But we have to beware not to take that one thing out of context. Paul is saying, keep this in context, but, uh, but apply it. That's how the Word of God works. Now, it's cool because what Paul does in his letters is, in, in specific instances when he's saying, hey, I'm writing on behalf of Jesus Christ, but at times when he inserts his own self, he says, I, Paul, say this, not the Lord. So you have, you know, inspired by the Holy Spirit still, he, he says things like, hey, this isn't the Lord, this is me. Maybe you've heard people say that before. Hey, this isn't the Holy Spirit speaking, but this is, this is what I think. This is kind of what I believe. You know, you take it and you go pray over that and you ask the Lord. That, that's kind of what Paul does. He helps us, helps us, you know, look at Scripture and say, okay, these are absolutes. These are the things that, that, that the Lord Jesus said these are the things that I think. I think it's kind of cool that he does that, and yet it's still all God's word. It's still all God's word. Now, he goes on here, and he, he gives his credentials. He tells us the authority in which he's, he, he's speaking under, and then he mentions God as Savior. Now, there's a very, very specific reason why he's doing this. He, he's not everything that, that's written in the word of God has a reason for being there. And in this particular case, when he titles God as Savior, what he's doing is addressing uh, an issue that's, that's happening 
in, in his time period, you see, they lived under Roman rule. And under Roman rule, the, the Caesar of that day was to be addressed as Savior. Isn't that interesting? So Paul says, let me tell you who our Savior is. Our Savior is not Caesar. I hope you're not here this morning thinking your Savior is the guy that sits in the White House. He's not your Savior. It's a very, very important point. Caesar is not Savior, but God is Savior. Now, he could have said Jesus, and that would have been fine because Jesus is Savior, but he said God. Now, when he says God, he's implying something He's he's implying, he's speaking about the the triune God. He's talking about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit when he says God there. And and here's the thing is like, you know, when you look at at Scripture and you read the word God, it's always speaking of the Trinity. It's always speaking of the Trinity. When you you read the words in the Old Testament, you know, and and it's addressing um, God as Lord, you know, L, O, capital L, all caps, L-O-R-D, that is literally in the Hebrew speaking of Adonai. Here's an interesting thing about that. That, that is a plural address of God. Did you know that? So anytime you see Lord, all caps in the Old Testament, that's speaking in plurality. That's speaking of the Godhead. That's why in Genesis 1.26 when it says, let us make man in our image, it's plural because the, these, the, the, the scripture's written in plurality when it speaks to God. Yahweh or Jehovah, plural. Adonai, plural. Elohim, plural. So, so here we find Paul addressing all kinds of different doctrines within just different ways that the Holy Spirit is, is speaking about this. God, our Savior. God alone is our Savior. You can't find hope in Muhammad. You can't find hope in Buddha and Hare Krishna or in Caesar. God alone is our Savior. He goes on here and he says, To Timothy, my true child in the faith. Paul, again, was Timothy's spiritual father. He had this great relationship with Timothy, first established probably through his mother and grandmother. You know, Did Paul actually lead Timothy to the Lord? We don't know. Maybe. Definitely indirectly, for sure, because when Paul came through on his first missionary journey through Lystra and through Derby, he, uh, he, Timothy's grandmother and his mother got saved through his ministry. So at the very least, Timothy got saved through the, 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 the secondary effects of Paul's ministry, but he could have led him to the Lord, who knows? But what we do know is that he discipled him. 2 Timothy 3.15 tells us that Timothy was taught the scriptures from his childhood. His mom and his grandma poured the scriptures into him. Listen, you want to raise your kids well? Pour the scriptures into your kids. The Bible says the word of God never returns void. Are your kids going to mess up? You can do this a lot. So yeah, they're going to mess up big time. But here's the deal. Is that the word of God never returns void. You know, it's amazing to see what God does. So, so his name, Timothy, interesting enough, means one who honors God. There was an investment going on in Timothy's life since he was a kid, a child. His, the word of God was being invested. The Lord had a call on Timothy's life, and he put him right in the place that he needed to be in order to, uh, you know, to fulfill that calling. 
So Paul comes through his second missionary journey to this area. Again, Derby, which, by the way, he made an incredible impact on. Anybody remember what, what Paul did there, the first missionary journey? He got people really upset, which he was really good at doing, and then they took him outside. They stoned him to death. Was he, de was he totally dead or not? I don't know, but he, they thought he was dead. They walked away. And what did he do? He get back up. He walks back in the town. He goes, let me tell you about Jesus. You know, and you're like, whoa, that is savage, you know, to do something like that, to come straight out of, you know, persecution right back into the same place you just got persecuted. You understand the impact of that. Those people in that city were like, whoa, this message is real. This guy's willing to give up his life for the message. And, and so, you know, they, they get saved and all of that. Timothy, he comes around his second missionary journey. Timothy's older. What does Paul do? He takes Timothy and he says, Timothy, you come with me because God has a call on your life and I want to personally disciple you. Now, I don't know. There, there's lots of awesome people in the Bible. You know, there, the number one person I would love to be discipled by is Jesus. Just directly. You know, just like, just like uh, you know, the, the apostles were. But if I had to pick a second person, it might be Paul. I mean, he wrote most of the New Testament. So I might be like, man, that would be a pretty awesome, uh, you know, thing to be able to walk with Paul through the missionary journeys. Not that he's a man, totally imperfect, but he loved God with all his heart, and he poured into people. And he's pouring into Timothy, and he's, and he's telling him, man, God has a call on your life. Now, it, also, Paul, if you don't know, his... his um, he was, he was Jewish, yes, but he was also considered a Roman citizen. How does that work? Well, his dad was Jewish, but yet somehow, perhaps maybe through purchasing uh, Roman um, citizenship or he did something that got him Roman citizenship, regardless, something like that, Paul was a Roman citizen. So he had dual citizenship. That's why Paul says, to the, to the Jew, I become a Jew. To the Greek, I become a Greek. Why? Because he can play both sides of the fence. Isn't God cool like that? That he uses Paul like that. So what he sees in Timothy is the same thing. So Timothy it has a Greek father, a Jewish mother. So he says, oh, dude, we can use that. The Lord can use that. Titus, when he takes him on, Titus is full Greek. He's a full Gentile, so that's a whole different story. But with Timothy, I think there was an, some kind of a synergy where he says, I, I, can, I can see how the Lord can use you because I see how the Lord uses me. So he, he brings Timothy alongside, and uh, Timothy is with Paul. when he, As Paul is writing this right now, he's with Paul for on and off 15 years. So, so Timothy is well-equipped, very well-equipped to, you know, step into this role, and to be able to minister to these people in Ephesus. He's been trained well. In fact, he's been with Paul, pretty much living with Paul, you know, outside probably of his imprisonment. And of course, there's a couple times where he had to flee and sent Timothy to a different place, but they rendezvoused and those kinds of things. You can see that in the book of Acts. But, um, but Timothy had sort of just been with Paul by his side the whole time. And uh, what, he, what he says about that you can only say this if you have truly walked with somebody in life. He says, Timothy is a true child in the faith. He's a true child in the faith. You know, what, he, what he's saying is he is a bona fide, genuine, born-again believer. 
How do I know? Because I've spent a lot of time with Timothy. I see the Holy Spirit working in his life. That's the reality. He says, is Timothy perfect? No. He messed up. He did stuff. But his heart's desire is to serve the Lord. So, so Paul says Timothy is a genuine, bona fide, born-again believer, a true child in the faith. Paul ends this introduction in verse, verse 3 here with, with sort of a standard greeting of the day, you know, grace and peace. Charis, grace in the Greek, shalom, peace in the, in the Hebrew, and he's a, that's kind of how they addressed people in this day. And um, it, it's always interesting that Paul uses those two words in that order. And, and it's interesting he uses it in that order because there's a theological lesson in that order. And here it is. Are you ready? You will never know the peace of God until you know the grace of God. You will never truly be able to embrace the peace of God. You can have false peace. And you can tell yourself all day long different things to make yourself feel certain ways. But you can never truly know the peace of God until you have fully embraced the grace of God. What is the grace of God? It's God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. There, there's, there is God establishing, uh, you know, something in the phrasing here which is awesome. But interesting enough, Paul inserts only to Timothy. In 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, he inserts the word mercy in there. He says, hey, Timothy, don't forget about the grace, mercy, and peace of God. W what does mercy mean? What, what does that word mean? It literally means uh, to, to not get what you deserve. So in other words, your kid, you know, crayons all over the walls, messes up the joint. It's going to cost you a thousand bucks to fix. And you go, wow, you really messed up, but I'm not going I'm, I'm to give you what you deserve. Grace would be, oh, hey, by the way, let's go get some ice cream. That's grace. Not only do you not get what you deserve, but then you get what you don't deserve. That's grace. The, different, the Grace and mercy, they play hand in hand together. And Paul mentions to Timothy here, I don't want you to forget about the mercy of God, about not giving people what they deserve. Does that mean that Timothy was a merciless person? I don't think so. I think it's a mention here to Timothy specifically reminding him of the mercy of God on his own life. Maybe Timothy was a little bit hard on himself, like maybe some of you are. How could God do anything with me? What could God do with a guy like me? I mess, I mess up all the time. He couldn't do anything. Listen, he doesn't give you what you deserve, but he does give you what you don't deserve. And it's an amazing thing. Timothy, God is merciful, and he wants to use you. So he goes on here now, and he, he begins to speak to Timothy about this, about the maintaining sound doctrine. Here's the urge from Paul to maintain sound doctrine, verse 3. As I urge you, when I was going to Macedonia... Remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. 
The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The word urge here is a compound word in the Greek. It's parakaleo, para to come alongside, kaleo to call. And so what Paul is saying is, I'm urging, I'm coming alongside of you. I want to encourage you, Timothy, right now. Here's the instruction. Remain in Ephesus. Remain in Ephesus. Now, why does he say that? Why is he urging Timothy to remain? Because Timothy apparently doesn't want to remain in Ephesus. And what we know about the character of Timothy, what we know about him from Scripture is that he's timid, that he's afraid of man, that he's, he's, he's fearful of the calling that God has on his life. And so he pulls back, and he, and he doesn't fully engage and really go after what God has called him to do. So Paul encourages him constantly. He's telling him, he, he reminds him in 2 Timothy 1, 6 through 7, for this reason I remind you, fan into the flame the gift of God that's in you, Timothy. Don't forget that God has called you, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Paul saying, you are called. You, you, are, uh, you, you have the gifting to be a pastor. Verse 7, listen to this. For God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of love and self-control. What was Timothy's problem? He feared man. Listen, everyone in this room has that problem. We operate in this world based on what we think people are going to, how they're going to view us and how they're going to respond to the different things that we're doing. We'll go into certain groups and we'll be super evangelistic. We'll go into other groups and we won't say a word because we fear man, because we care about what man will say about us. We want to be liked, right? And some of, some of us really, you know, we don't do a super good job of that, but, um, you know, some of us have the total gifting the other way, which is not good. But, um, you know, we all, have, we all have a fear of man to some degree. But Paul tells Timothy, don't, don't let that fear stop you. You see, what's happening to Timothy is that his fear of man is gobbling up the faith of fulfilling his calling. Maybe you're here today and, and you've been doing that. Maybe the Lord's been speaking to you about, hey, you know what? We all have a calling in life. Every one of us has a calling from God. If you're a child of God, you're not just supposed to sit at the bus stop and wait for the bus to come pick you up and take you to heaven. You have a job. Like God called you to something. We all have the general call to evangelism, right? That's Matthew 28, you know, verses 18 through 20. Jesus said, go into all the world, baptizing in the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So, so we all have that general call. What stops us from doing that? The fear of man, of course. But, but also beyond that is we also have a specific call from God. You know, and, and if we're not careful and we don't seek God like we're supposed to seek him, we'll never know that. We will never, ever truly identify what our calling is in life. So in 2004, I'm seeking the Lord in my closet at 5 a.m. My wife's sleeping in the room. You know, I'm in, I'm in like a walk-in closet. She's in the bedroom sleeping. And I'm just got my guitar out. I'm worshiping, and I'm just praying to God, God, what do you want for my life? What do you want me to do, Lord? I know that you have a call on my life. I'm seeking you, Lord. I'm asking you to speak to me. And, and he gave me a scripture, and he, he told me, um, 
I want you to go take the gospel to the other cities in the world. He used this scripture in, um, in the book of Mark, chapter 4, where Jesus was, uh, you know, in, in these cities sharing the gospel, and they tried to keep him in this one particular city, but he said, I need to go out, and I need to go share the gospel in other cities. So the Lord right there gave me some very specific call. And, you know, of course, I didn't fully understand what that meant in the moment, but I knew God spoke to me. And so I began to dig into that. Lord, what does that mean? So when you call somebody to go to something like that, what do you do? Well, I look in the scripture and it says you called your disciples, you equipped them, then you sent them out. So what, well, I'm going to seek equipping. So I began to get equipped in the word of God. I began to, you know, my pastor began to personally disciple me, sort of like what Paul did with, with uh, Timothy. Uh, my pastor was uh, 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 one of the professors at Calvary Chapel Bible College. So he said, let me just take you through a mini Bible college. And uh, that's, that's what we did. And through that, through all of that seeking the Lord and saying, what do you want for my life? The Lord eventually in 2006, you know, through some circumstances that were going on in my life, said, I want you to go to Columbia, Tennessee and plant a church. And I'm like, what? Now, right there, I knew Timothy's struggle. I know what it means to be afraid to step out into something and go, whoa, that's kind of big, isn't it? I've never even been on staff at a church. I don't know what that looks like. You know, how do you do that? How do you go just plan a church? And, you know, what do you do when you plan a church? What happens if people show up? Now what? What do we do now, Lord? You know, kind of thing. And, and, it, and it's fearful. And, you know, if, if you let that fear overtake you, you'll do nothing. You will stop cold, dead in your tracks. So, the Lord, I don't know how, gave me the kick out the door and I did it. And you know, the, the Lord has been faithful, but I'll tell you, I've had to overcome fear all the, uh, constantly. Constantly overcome fear. But I know that God always meets me when he calls me. And so maybe you're here this morning and you're like, man, I have no idea what that's even like. Just begin to seek the Lord. Because he, he designed you, Ephesians 2.10, go home, memorize this verse, circle it, write it all over your house. You are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that he created beforehand for you to walk in. We're not just here waiting for Jesus to show up. Like God from the foundation of the world said, I am going to plant Aurora in Columbia, Tennessee in August or whenever you guys moved out here. And I'm going, I have a specific plan for her. Some of you guys move here, you have no clue why you moved to Columbia, Tennessee. You're just like, I don't know. We don't know why we're here. The Lord just moved us. There's a very, very specific reason for that. He has a call on you. What is your call? What, what are you doing right now? What, what, what is God speaking into your life? Are you allowing fear to stop you from stepping into what God's calling you to do? Man, if Timothy did that, this church in Ephesus, what would have happened? Who knows? God would have sent somebody else. That's exactly what would have happened. But he had that for Timothy. And he has something for you. Don't allow fear to stop you. You know, step into it. It's gonna, you're going to be fearful. I'm, I'm so out of my realm a lot of times when I step into a room and I go, dude, I don't, I, you know, the first thing I step into a room of pastors, I go, man, I don't belong here. What am I doing here? That's the spirit of fear. It's not the spirit that God has given us.
He has a call on your life. Step into that light. Timothy, step into that. Don't allow fear to stop you. You need to remain in Ephesus because God has called you. Now, here's what I want you to do. You need to confront people. Oh, there's more? Not only do I have to remain, but now i got to get confrontational with people? That's also a big, big deal for people. But listen, confrontation is good. You know the scripture is iron sharpens iron, so does one man to another. Confrontation causes friction, what's supposed to cause growth. It's supposed to cause you to sharpen each other. Not friction for the sake of me being right, but friction for the sake of me being holy. Friction for the sake of me being pure. Friction for the sake of me growing beyond my comfort zone. That's the point. He says, Timothy, I want you to go confront these people um, that are in Ephesus uh, about the different doctrine that they're teaching. He's telling them that there is contradictions and things going on in the doctrine of this church. Now, this is a super important point. Um, I don't understand how anyone could walk into a Unitarian church and feel like they get something out of that. Because you walk in there, I've never been, but I only can imagine that one day you have a Catholic priest that says something. The next day you have a Muslim priest who shows up. And then the next day you have somebody else who shows up. And you're like, what in the world am I learning? Like, where is the truth in, in this? There is a truth. There's an absolute truth, actually. But if you entertain all of these different things, which if you're seeking and you've never ever came to that place of understanding the Lord, that may be the process. But the Holy Spirit is faithful and he will show you the truth. The Holy Spirit will lead you into all truth. But, but here's my point. Could you imagine if I got up here and, and I said one thing from the pulpit, here's, here's what we believe at this church. And I said something. Then Pastor Mike gets up, you know, next week, and he's like, well, actually, here's really what we believe at this church. It's different than what I said, right? And then Pastor Brian gets up the next week, and he goes, those guys are idiots. This is really what we believe here. What would you be thinking? You'd be like, I, I got no idea what they believe, but I, I, don't, I hope you would say, I don't want any part of that. I'm out of here. I hope that's what you would say. That's why... You have to guard the doctrine of your church. That's why when, when we put a doctrinal statement out and when people apply to teach in our church, in women's ministry, in men's ministry, we ask them, what do you believe about these specific things? Well, we have an application and it's got some theological questions on it. Some, it's okay if you don't know them. That's fine. Because you know what? Then we can show you, well, this is our doctrinal statement. This is what we believe about this particular, about the gifts of the Spirit, for instance. This is what we believe about the gifts of the Spirit. So, you know, there's two different stances on there. Cessationist, continuous, we're continuous. We believe that the gifts of the Spirit are for today. Here's the scriptures of why we believe this and, and, and kind of where do you sit in this. Now, if you're like, I absolutely, totally disagree and I'm a staunch against that, you're never teaching this church. Why? Because that's contrary to what, what, what God is doing here. Not that the other doctrine is wrong or, you know, or, or, or we're wrong. It's secondary, number one. But here's the deal is you can't have information going out that's not consistent. And according to the view of the Scripture, what we are looking for is like-minded people that believe the Scriptures. We have reasons for why we believe these things. And, you know, trust me, there's been plenty of people that have come to try and change our mind. You know, I don't, we don't have a sign on the door that says change our mind. 
We don't have that. We're, we're, we're not that we're not closed to it. Don't get me wrong. But, but we have vetted these things in the scriptures. And, you know, there's always going to be two sides to some doctrines, folks. We love those people that are, continue, that are cessationists. I love John MacArthur. I love all of that whole Bible teaching, uh, true Christian believers that are sincere and faithful to God. I love those guys. But here's the thing is, if you're a Calvinist, you're not going to teach from this pulpit because we're not. And if you want to, you can go somewhere else and teach, right? Because there's plenty of Calvinist churches where you can do that. So my point is this. You, the consistency of the doctrine has to, it has to be consistent. You can't have people saying all kinds of different things. Paul is saying there's, there's people in this church, not only are they they're twisting some things, because remember, he said there's going to be people that rise up from within you and they begin to twist what you're saying, right? But also, you're going to have wolves that come in and they just have direct false doctrine, directly false doctrine. Uh, you know, and, and, and that's things like, you know, you have to, you have to do all these things. You can believe in Jesus, that's fine, but you got to do all these things. That's a Jesus plus doctrine. That is a false doctrine, false teaching, and, you know, there's, that has, you have no place. Here, here's the interesting thing about this. Paul is saying that they're, they're teaching fables, which are false things, right? They're, they're teaching things relating, ideologies relating to genealogies that are, that are speculation. So he's saying they may or may not be true, but ultimately they really don't lead you to Christ. Ultimately, they don't really lead you to grow in any way, shape, or form. So what would be the point of that? What would be the point of us you know, talking about things that don't challenge us in our faith. And then we actually potentially divide over something that is speculative that really ultimately doesn't make us grow. That would be ridiculous. That's what's happening. But here's the awesome thing about it. Paul didn't say, make sure you kick them out of the church. That's not what he said. He said, he told, he said, command them, charge them, to stop saying these things. Now, if it comes down to it, that's exactly what should happen. There should be a separation. If you can't, if you, you have somebody who's, who's saying certain things that's false doctrine and they won't stop saying it, then a little leaven leavens the whole lump and you can't allow that. So this, this is where what we call church discipline comes in and you step in and you say, hold on a second, as a sheep jog of Jesus Christ, we have to protect the, the sheep, and we're not going to allow this false doctrine to, to go on. That sounds heavy-handed in our culture today. Sounds like, whoa, that's really militant. And I'm totally not that way. I'm totally not that way. But here's the thing is our society is so the other way now that if you ever step to somebody and say, hold on a second, we have to be careful about this stuff. Who, who are you? Who do you think you are? Are you the Holy Spirit? Hold on a second. This is scriptural. This is biblical. This is how we deal with stuff. You see, the pendulum is swaying so far to the liberal side when it comes to, to the way the church operates that that's what we think is normal. That is not normal. I would challenge anyone who doesn't think uh, that, that, you know, anyone should say anything to anybody about in, within the four walls of the church about doctrine and different things like that. I would challenge you to actually read the Bible. I would challenge you to actually read 
the New Testament, to read the book of Acts, to read the book of Romans, to read First and Second Corinthians, to read First and Second Timothy, to read Titus, to read all of these books, because that's exactly what's happening. Paul is saying, you need to go directly into these false teachers, into all this, all this sin that's happening in the church, and you need to say, enough is enough, stop it. So, that's what he's saying. He's not saying don't leave. He's saying, you know, if, if you can't get on the same page, you know, um, then, then maybe this isn't the church for you. Maybe you need to find a different church that, uh, of, of wh- where you can fully express the things that you express, you know, and that kind of stuff. That's why, you know, if, like, for instance, the way we worship, if people were to ever, you know, get up and start running around the sanctuary and waving signs and all this kind of stuff, we think that's irreverent. We would say, hey, we're going to, we don't do that here. There's churches that do that, that's fine, but go to one of them, you know. We, we love you, and if you want to cease doing that, awesome. Come on, worship with us. But we believe that worship should be a time where all attention is on Jesus. And if I'm running around the place and people are looking at me, then I'm drawing attention to myself. And again, th- this is just order. This is house rules. These are things that really I think the Bible kind of lays out for us. But nevertheless, he tells Timothy, don't kick them out, but just, just make sure you charge them, literally command them to stop teaching these doctrines. He goes on here in verse, verse 6, certain persons and by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. These, these teachers had come into this thing, and again, vain discussions. What is that? This stuff that leads to nothing. It's really conversations that don't edify the saints or bring glory to the Lord. And he's saying, cut that stuff out. Here, here's some of the things that were going on. We know for sure. T- Paul addresses um, one specific thing in 1 Timothy 4.3 regarding these for, for, uh, false teachers who were forbidding marriage and requiring abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So in other words, there were Judaizers that had come into this place and said, you need to adhere to the strict um, Jewish food laws. And you need to, ex- but, but, but didn't, didn't Peter have a dream in Acts chapter 10? And didn't the Lord kind of tell him that's not actually the way it works? Even though he was talking about Jews and Gentiles, he was also talking about the freedom to eat pork. You guys like bacon? Awesome. If you're a Jew and you want to follow the law, cut it out of your diet. But because we're, we're under Christ, we don't have to do that. Because God told Peter, don't you ever call anything that I've made unclean. Nothing that I've made is unclean. So, so Paul is saying, you know, you've got people doing this and we need to cut that out. And uh, um, they're, they're very law-focused. Have you ever met a believer like that? oh, man, you're, you don't observe the Sabbath? What, you're not a Christian. You're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> what, do you, what do you mean? You're, you, you know, it comes out of nowhere because there's, there's people that are Jesus plus people that believe in Jesus, but they believe that you have to adhere to all these kinds of rules and regulations in order to be a real believer. My Bible says it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone that I'm saved. And when I'm saved, Romans chapter 5, verse 1, I am justified before the Father. My salvation is settled, folks. My sanctification is a whole different thing. 
how I live my life and how God purifies me and all these kinds of things is different. But if I'm truly saved, I'm justified before the Father. He will never come back to me and say, oh man, you're not justified anymore. Really? Then Christ's blood is not sufficient. His blood is sufficient, folks. But we have to know that we know that we know that we have a genuine, true relationship with Christ. He goes on here. He tells him these guys are, the law was meant to be a tutor to bring us to Christ. He goes on here in verse 8. He says, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and the sinner, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexual immoral, men and men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Like, let me just put that out there. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Here, here's what Paul said. Judaizers are going to come in, but don't ever forget that it, the, the, the law is good. I think sometimes um, New, New Testament believers can sort of actually diminish the law like it wasn't, like, it's, like, God, like God didn't actually make it. That's not the case. The law is good. And in fact, Paul says in the book of Romans that if the law had never been given, I would have never known what sin was. But thank God that he said, here's the standard, and I want you to look at that standard, and I want you to measure yourself up against it. And then you can look at it and go, that's impossible. And the Lord will say, exactly. Exactly, because the law, like Paul said in Galatians 3, is a guardian or a tutor or a teacher to bring us to Christ. It's supposed to instruct us that we can't keep the law unto salvation. We need Jesus Christ. When we come to Christ again, we're justified. The righteous requirements of the law are satisfied. We're perfect in God's eyes. But that doesn't mean that then we go ahead and live lawless. Paul said in Romans chapter 7, I believe, or 6, at the end there, he said, so what then? Since grace abounds, should I just do whatever I want to do? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And that's what people have a problem with. They call it once saved, always saved. I call it biblical justification. I don't like that word once saved, always saved. That, that's, not, that's not the biblical term is justified. And, and here's the thing is, people that, that have a problem with the, 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 um, having a, being secure in your salvation, they, their problem is this that they understand that we're going to continue to sin. So they don't, under, they don't, how can you, see, they don't have a proper understanding of grace. They don't have a proper understanding of the shed blood of Christ on the, on the cross. That it doesn't, that, that when I become a believer, I don't become sinless. Listen, I should become better than I was. And in fact, Paul says that in 1 Corinthians. He says, you know, he lists a litany of different sins and he says, and some were such as you. You were those people one time, but you've been changed, you've been washed, you've been cleaned. But you'll never be perfect. You'll never be perfect. 1 John tells us, he who says he is without sin is a liar. That's what it says. So praise God that I can rest in my salvation, not based on my ability to keep the law perfectly. Jesus kept it for me. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. 
There's a desire to do it. Again, in verse 21 of John 14, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest him, myself to him. Praise God. Listen, it is so important that we as believers take the word of God and we correctly divide it. We rightly divide it, that we maintain sound doctrine, that we, that we understand why we believe what we believe. It's okay, like if you're in a state where you're like, hey, I don't understand that. Well, guess what? Awesome. That means that's the assignment that the Lord's given you to go understand that. Like, go research this out. If you're like, man, I, I totally disagree with that guy said today, then, then look it up and go read it. You know, we don't want to spoon feed people. We want people to get in the Bible and say, hey, you know what? What you said was wrong right here. And that's, that's, that's ultimately what we live our lives on, not how we feel about what the Bible says, not how, what other people say, and so we just adopted that scripture. You know, we're, I'm really good at that. We always say these cliche Christian statements that aren't even biblical. God only helps those who help themselves. Amen, brother. Yeah, you know, and it's like, wait a second, that's not in the Bible. God will never give you more than you can handle. Oh, yeah, he'll never do it. Yeah, he will. That's not biblical either. So we ought to know the Bible. Maintain sound doctrine. That's how you grow in the Lord. And that's how the Lord uses you. Amen? Will you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for giving us clarity and understanding this morning of this letter that we are embarking on, Lord, of 1 Timothy. And why you wrote this to Timothy and, Father, why you want to speak to us about it. And so we ask you, Lord, even now, you would help quicken our hearts as we, for the next several weeks, go through this, these scriptures, God, that you would change our lives, change our understanding. Father, your word is active and alive and it is powerful and it speaks right into our lives. So this morning, Lord, we just, we just ask that you use these, these chapters in 1 Timothy to, to wreck us beautifully, Lord. This morning, Father, we, we've heard various things, maybe things about fear of man and salvation by Christ alone and these sorts of things, Lord, and we trust that you've been speaking to people. So we ask you, Lord, even now, to just move in our hearts as we close, Lord, that if there's anyone here that needs salvation this morning, that they come forward. They pray with one of these people up front, Lord, that, hey, I want to really know the Lord. If there's, uns there, there's, there's just some things in our hearts, Lord, that we're unsure about, will you give us the boldness, Lord, to come and ask? Lord, we just ask you to move in these last moments of, of this service, those who are online, Lord. We ask for your Holy Spirit to have your way in us. And fill us, Lord, now. Use us for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.